Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. It's been about three months since Missouri experienced a transition from Governor Eric Greitens to Governor Mike Parson. And lawmakers like Senator Bob Onder have noticed a marked difference. The Lake St. Louis Republican joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to talk about Parson's first three months in office and potential priorities for next year's legislative session. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manish. Elections should be about your accomplishments. What have you done to qualify you for the position and why are you qualified to run? I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a political reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is off this week, so our special guest host today is... Rachel Lippman, one of the other political reporters here at St. Louis Public Radio. And coming all the way from scenic and beautiful Lake St. Louis, Missouri, we have as our guest... State Senator Bob Onder. He's here to talk about the 10th anniversary of the 9th District Congressional race, right? Well, that's true. It is that. No, he's not actually here to talk about that. <laughs> Although we are, all of us in this room are very happy about Brock Olivo's success as a special teams coach in the NFL. Brock's a great guy. Yes. We're, we're actually here to talk about, uh, you know, the current state of Missouri politics and the upcoming special session, as well as the election that's coming up. I want to start off as to get your kind of reflections on the last eight or nine months. It's Missouri politics has changed dramatically since June 1st. I think it's fair to say that the first four or five months was, as you you probably heard on on my show, a a hellscape that I think both Republicans and Democrats wanted to uh, escape. But you were kind of in the thick of it as a a legislator trying to deal uh, with getting stuff done while the Greitens chaos was going on. I'm interested to hear your perspective on what it was like and what it's like now. Well, yeah, Jason, we did have a lot of distractions early in this session, throughout this session, uh, with the uh, scandals surrounding our former governor, uh, both both the uh, what happened in the city of St. Louis, as well as the discussion about possible campaign finance improprieties and other issues. And that could have been a huge distraction on the work of the legislature. But I am happy to say that we really did buckle down, get to the people's business, and um, really got quite a bit done. Of course, we fulfilled our constitutional responsibility of balancing budget without raising taxes. We passed a number of important um, measures in education and labor reform in uh, business business reform and deregulation. Um, I think we did a lot of uh, really good things for the people of the state of Missouri this session, despite the distractions. And it's good to have the distractions um, behind us um, so that we can have a productive 2019. So Governor Parson has been governor for about three or three months now? Yes. Three yes. months. What's, what's been your impressions of him? Because the the general consensus I've got from both parties is they really like him personally. There may be some issues that 
they disagree with, but they feel like it, it, it since especially since the governor it doesn't seem like he's going to be running for something else other than governor. He's really focused on a lot of Missouri-centric issues, which is a big change from the last administration. Yeah, I think that's right, Jason. My impression of Governor Parson goes back a decade. Um, Mike and I served in the uh, Missouri House together in 2006 through 2008. He he and I served in the Senate together for a couple of years, and then uh, while I was in the Senate, he was our lieutenant governor and, of course, the president of the Senate in that capacity. Um, Mike Parson and Eric Greitens couldn't be more different. Uh, Mike has a much more collaborative, uh, congenial style of governing, much more values relationships with House members, with Senate members. With the government departments, um, and and I think I think Governor Parson will do a great job, and I really look forward to working with him. I'm wondering, you said that you guys were able to get a lot accomplished, even despite all of the distractions. Is there an area where, because so much of the time got eaten up, maybe especially in the House with the committee, that you couldn't, where the distractions really did become an issue in accomplishing some of the the legislative goals that you could have with Republicans, sort of top to bottom? Yeah, I really think that. Uh, it's hard to see how we could have gotten much more done than we did. I think it was a very productive session. I do know that uh, the many of the House members, particularly on, those on the investigative committee, were under a lot of stress and a lot of strain, and they took their responsibilities very seriously. I think both Republicans and Democrats um, just acquitted themselves of their duty with uh, great diligence, with great thoroughness, and uh, really, really took their constitutional responsibilities very seriously. But I don't see any area where where uh, the legislative work was lacking because of those distractions. Now, well, your legislative work isn't done yet because next week uh, lawmakers are going to be going back into session to uh, deal with a couple of bills that, that Governor Parson vetoed. Yes. Just kind of explain what those bills are because this is a much different special session from like the last two special yes. sessions. Yes, and, and it's a different special session because essentially the governor agrees with the legislature on these vote bills that he vetoed. Um, in, in one, one was the bill having to do with science and math curriculum, computer science curriculum. The other had to do with uh, drug treatment courts. And in both cases, uh, the governor um, believed that because of some drafting errors that uh, essentially business state contracts would be directed toward you know one particular vendor and that that was inappropriate and therefore the um, the right thing to do uh, he believed was to veto the bill and uh, then call a special session uh, now whether those two issues um, you know could have waited till January um, or whether we needed a special session um, you know I, I think that I think though they both are very important issues and uh, certainly since we're working on the special session concurrent with veto session I think we can uh, get that that important work done with minimal expense to the taxpayers at the risk of continuing to kick the former governor when he's down. Uh, the last, the two special sessions I alluded to earlier were kind of done not in conjunction with veto session, That's even right. though one of them involved an issue that you've been involved with for years, right. abortion, abortion rights. Right. There was a feeling that he called those special sessions as a way to provide more political benefit to himself as opposed to effectuating public policy. 
What's what's your opinion of that? I know we're well, it's a bit well, retrospective, but that was kind of the opinion at the time. You know, the way I looked at it, the the uh, pr- work in the pro life special session, those were some things that emerged um, in the spring of 2017. Uh, both the uh, St. Louis City. Um, uh, abortion sanctuary city bill, if you will, that uh, was in ongoing litigation, and really that litigation um, uh, needed some finality in order to protect the free speech rights of the pregnancy care centers. And of course, Judge Sachs in, in Kansas City had stru- had uh, struck down all of Missouri's uh, m- health and safety regulations, um, and. Uh, we needed to have a special session. Whether those things could have been done in the final couple of weeks of the regular session, um, uh, I'll I'll leave that to history to judge. But uh, but I, I think that uh, it was good the governor called that session. But you're right, there was concern many times that the former governor was uh, was doing things for you know political purposes rather than policy purposes. Wow, politics happening in the general assembly. And Who would have thought? <laughs> establishment? Wait a minute. (laughs) Assuming that you are reelected to the seat in the state Senate, you have a Democratic challenger this time. I don't think you did last time. Um, What should be the Republican legislative priorities in the 2019 session? Yeah. Well, I think uh, the the governor, of course, has emphasized the issues of transportation infrastructure, which uh, will in large part be decided on whether the voters um, pass uh, pass Proposition D, the uh, the gas tax proposal to fund transportation infrastructure. He also talks a lot about workforce development, which is, of course, is an area of uh, huge uh, concern to me. Serving on the Senate Education Committee, other issues I think we should really look at are health care reform. I believe that we need to look at ways of making our Medicaid program more efficient, uh, more effective for those it serves, as well as more accountable to the taxpayers. I think we need to look at giving healthcare consumers more options. Uh, Certainly the uh, Trump administration's willingness to expand short-term medical plans is um, something along those lines. I think entitlement reform needs to be a uh, theme of our legislative session. Because we know that unemployment's at a record low, but workforce participation is still quite low. We really need to get people off the sidelines, off of welfare programs, and into the workforce where they can have the dignity of work so they can advance themselves and provide better for their families. So those are just a couple of the areas I think we ought to look at next session. Should right to work be something that comes up again, even after Proposition A's defeat? So, Rachel, the defeat of Proposition A was a perfect storm, a combination of the fact that it was the subject of a referendum, the fact that the uh, unions outspent um, pro-right to work forces 10 to 1, um, the fact that the uh, governor's guidance scandals distracted from the effort to preserve right to work. Um, at the same time, we've got to look at the benefits of right to work for states. Kentucky passed right to work just a week or two before we did in January of 2017. Kentucky has had a record year for business investment, $9 billion, $3 billion plus projects, including an Amazon expansion, a Toyota expansion, and at Brady's industry plant. Uh, tens of thousands of new jobs. Missouri will never have 
economic opportunities like that as long as we stay a forced unionization state. But as far as the timing, whether this next session or sometime in the future, uh, that will be something that will be a, a topic of discussion amongst our caucus and the House caucus. Do, do you worry that your county voting so strongly against right to work and you being one of the more vocal legislative supporters of it, does that put your ability to kind of advance it in the future at risk? Is it re-election at risk for you, do you think? Yeah. I think there were a lot of issues why right to work uh, failed on the August ballot. Uh, when I have polled my own constituents, and these are general election voters, 65, 70 percent of people consistently favor right to work. But we know in polling that you can determine the outcome of a poll by the way you ask the question. And I thought the ballot language was very poor. Uh, so I don't, I don't believe that uh, Missourians really reject the concept of worker freedom. Um, but again, the timing of when to when to go back and um, and, uh, and 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 do the right thing by the state of Missouri and pass right to work, uh, that's something we'll have to look at going forward. I want to touch on another controversial issue: uh, low-income housing tax credits, because. One of the things that I think has been forgotten post Greitens is that program is still frozen as it of is. now. And I don't I still don't think the MHDC has enough members to actually unfreeze it. Right. I've heard the governor uh, say that he wants to make changes to the program before restarting it, even though Governor Parson is on record saying he's a big supporter of it. Right. So what what do you think the mindset of the legislature is gonna be to reshape that program? Um, because I could see, foresee a scenario where you make kind of tertiary changes and the governor declares victory, but I could also see a situation where maybe this is the momentum needed to make large-scale changes to the program, which has been elusive for a long time. Yes. Well, as you know, the low-income housing tax credit program in Missouri is the first or second most generous in the whole country. Thirty-five states do not have a low-income housing tax credit program. Uh, and at the same time, there are many good programs, projects funded by the LIHTC program. So I think reform is in order. I think the uh, the question is, is how much is the right amount of money? And is there a way of making these, these, these programs more, these tax credits more efficient, uh, more accountable, so that more more good projects are done, and, and less of the less of the profit of the program goes to the middlemen who uh, buy and sell the tax credits. There was a, some conjecture that uh, low-income housing tax credit developers were involved in exposing the Greitens scandal. A lot of reporters, for example, have asked developer Jeff Smith and, and, and people with Sterling Bank if they were involved with the Scott Fawn, Al Watkins money. Even about three months later, we've never received a response. Um, I know that the House Budget Committee um, also kind of froze the program, and I know that Scott Fitzpatrick is very concerned about where that money came from. Right. Now, at the risk of, of exerting collective punishment on all LIHTC people, do you believe that Jeff Smith and Sterling Bank need to answer to the legislature and to the public about whether they were involved in that or not? Look, I don't think we will ever know where the hundred twenty thousand dollars that was delivered to Al Watkins uh, came from uh but the governor had a number of very powerful enemies some of whom are very financially well-to-do um I think people should answer the questions 
I, I'm not sure what could potentially come up in the legislature next year. I play around in the city a little bit more often than I do in the legislature. But I'm wondering, I guess, kind of if you think um, how it might be different just kind of logistically going forward. I mean, getting these issues through and having, you know, productive conversations about it. What Aside from the issues, what's that going to be like with, with Governor Parson in the chair starting January, whenever you guys go in 2019? Does that, you know, make these priorities more easier to do or? Well, I think that's a good question, Rachel. And um, yeah, I think that some things will be easier to do with Governor Parson than they were under Governor Greitens. There were a number of issues, uh, even ones that I worked on, where there was a sense that, yes, the, the chamber of the body is with, is, is with me on the issue, but so is Governor Greitens, and that is a bad thing rather than a good thing. Ordinarily, when a governor is exerting leadership on an issue, that's a positive for that issue. Um, so I, I, I think that uh, you will see a more collaborative effort. I mean, after all, the House and the Senate and the governor's mansion are all occupied by people of the same party. So I think I think the change um, with the Governor Parson will be a change for the better. Prescription drug monitoring program, yes. Senator Schaff will be gone. Yes. I know that I, I think it's been kind of a misnomer that uh, Senator Schaff was the only opponent to that. Yeah. I think that there were other senators kind of in your realm of conservatism that uh, had some misgivings about uh, about that program. What do you think happens in 2019 on that issue? Yeah, well, I think, of course, the opioid epidemic is a very serious problem, one that we need to continue to address. And we passed major legislation uh, this session, a 2018 session, uh, with Senator Sater's bill, um, monitoring more closely the uh, and 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 dictating the 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 length of initial prescription for opioid medications. So there are a number of important things we can do. Of course, drug court legislation in the special session, I think, is another uh, another piece of legislation to address the opioid crisis. I personally have not been a strong supporter of prescription drug monitoring. I think, by and large, the data do not suggest that in the aggregate it works, although I certainly know physicians who specialize in areas like pain management where they very much would like to see a uh, PDMP program. And, of course, 70 percent of our state has adopted St. Louis County's prescription drug monitoring program, so so a good two-thirds of the state is already um, subject to PDMP. Um, yes, Senator Schaff has been a major opponent of it. I, I believe PDMP does probably get passed in the next session or two, um, but uh, but I, I, I think people place a lot more faith in that particular program than it deserves. So let's go down the line of, of some ballot initiatives that are going to be on the ballot because you know that's a bit redundant, by the way. But but, yes. but I think that that that's actually could be the most important thing that ends up happening beyond the U.S. Senate race and the auditors race. Let's go with the gas tax. What's yes. your thought on that? Yes. Well, I believe that we do need more money to fund transportation infrastructure. Um, I do not, however, believe that uh, it is good for the economy for to pass a three hundred million dollar um, tax increase on the people of the state of Missouri. I've had legislation in the past. Other senators have proposed legislation um, this session to uh, to supplement our our transportation 
tax uh, with some general revenue. So, um, so I, I, I think again, I, I, if it is, if it is passed, I think it'll be good that finally we have done something to, uh, to, to uh, fund our transportation infrastructure to a greater degree. It's not that the particular tax is not my preferred way of doing it. Uh, minimum wage, the yeah. proposal to boost the minimum wage to $12 an hour by 2020. Yeah, Rachel. 2023. The, 2023. Thank yeah, you. To, to me, the saddest thing about the minimum wage debate is that it's one of these things that sounds good, but unfortunately, it, it most hurts those that it's intended to help. Every dynamic economy needs entry-level jobs. When you put the minimum wage too high, you price people out of the labor market, you create more unemployment, you especially create unemployment among those who have been out of the workforce or never really been in the workforce, whether it be minorities, whether it be uh, people dropping out of school or people returning to the labor market after a period away from the labor market. Uh, I I think the minimum wage is unfortunate. It sounds good. Um, it probably will pass, but it will not be good for our economy, and it will not be good for the um, lower income and uh, unskilled workers that it purports to help. What do you think of the fact that almost $4 million of unidentified money from a group called the 1630 Fund has gone into this ballot initiative? I know you've talked about 501c4s before and have been leery about um, you know, saying how they spend their money and who donates to them. But it does seem to me that there's a lot less criticism of that donation than, say, what the the former governor's 501c4. What, right. What's your what's your thoughts right. on that? Well, one, yeah, one of the criticisms of the governor's 501c was that it seemed to be operating like a campaign committee but wasn't being subjected to the rules of a campaign committee. But, uh, you know, Believe me, yes, there are there are, are progressive groups around the country who uh, who, who move very large amounts of money around in uh, in five hundred one c's. It's very likely that that is union money. After all, unions are the ones who often benefit the most from minimum wages wage increases because that sets the floor from which they negotiate up. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I, whenever money comes from outside the state, we, we it gives us pause. I will just note that one of the 501c4s that has given to Raise Up Missouri has actually said in the past that unions gave to it. Right. I, I have no clue who gives the 1630 fund. Some other outlets have speculated, but when I asked them, they said they weren't going to reveal who yeah, their donors were. And the unions, to be fair, are also dumping in the money in their name, too. Like, well, they you are. know, the Steelworkers Pack, the Laborers Pack, they're, you know, but, the, they're putting the money in, in their names that, as well. I'm hearing that there may not even be organized opposition to this. I read the St. Louis Post-Dispatch article about the Chamber of Commerce maybe taking a pass on this, like they did in 2006. They didn't right. end up doing anything on this right. either. Is that just a strategic decision? You know, there's some issues that uh, poll well because they sound good. And uh, unfortunately, again, the unfortunate thing about minimum wage increases is that they most hurt the people they claim to help. Um, Jobs like my first job flipping hamburgers at a fast food restaurant, they will be replaced by computers. Fewer young people, fewer uh, unskilled workers needing that first step onto the 
realm of the economic ladder. Um, fewer of those folks will get jobs. In the long run, it's going to be bad for them as well as for the economy. Just to play devil's advocate before we go into the next series of initiatives, isn't it possible by 2023, $12 an hour will not be as detrimental to businesses as it is today, hypothetically? Well, the, well, the, and that's exactly what we hope, Jason. Um, in, in When I look at businesses out in my district, uh, very few are starting uh, entry-level workers at minimum wage. A lot are paying more because of supply and demand because people need workers to work in their businesses. So yes, we hope that the uh, the vitality of our economy, I like to call it our Trump economy, uh, will uh, will continue to drive wages and economic opportunity up for all workers, including entry-level workers. Now, here's a fun one that I'm sure you're really excited to talk about, the three marijuana medical marijuana initiatives. They're, they're all different. Like they, they, they vary depending on like what the taxes are and where the proceeds go to and how the mar- medical marijuana would be structured. But just in general, what's your, what's your thought on this? I think you've been a pretty outspoken opponent against medical marijuana. So I want you to give your take on this. Well, yes, I, I'm a physician and I very much uh, want to see anything that can alleviate human suffering. At the same time, I'm a medical researcher, so I very much believe that we should explore all avenues for treatment and remediation of diseases, including research in cannabinoid substances. And there have been um, cannabinoids, uh, THC, the ingredient of of marijuana that most uh, is active in conditions like nausea. And of, uh, of CBD, the, con- the, the ingredient in marijuana that's felt to help seizure disorders. And I support research along those lines. And I think there's, there are things we could do under federal law to encourage more of that research. But I do not believe in legalizing uh, marijuana as a medicine. I don't believe marijuana is a medication. And I really believe that there's a lot of money for the pot entrepreneurs to be made. And I really think that patients are being exploited uh, to get to their ultimate goal, which is full legalization and to make money on on selling marijuana to Missourians. Let's talk about full legalization. Let's say we, we dropped this pretense of medical marijuana right. and legalized it for recreational use and taxed it at a high rate that could be used for our schools or our roads or for our law enforcement. I'm not a marijuana smoker, by the way, and I'm sure neither Mm. one of you are. But what would be wrong with that at this point when other states like Colorado and Washington and California are— And I think Illinois has a proposal on the ballot, or at least for medical marijuana, or it just was legalized. Rather, just signed it. If the state can make a lot of money off of it, what's wrong with just legalizing it 100 percent? Well, you could say that about about cocaine or heroin, for that matter. A lot of money could be made on that. Look, in Colorado, uh, dr- uh, 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 driving while under the influence of marijuana deaths have gone up fourfold. Uh, something like 70 percent of marijuana is sold to people under the age of 25, and many of much of that is sold to minors. Um, s- medical studies show that, uh, that regular use of marijuana, especially among young people, lowers IQ points. The average age of homeless people on the streets of St. Louis is probably 50 years old. In Denver, it's 25. That's, those are mostly marijuana addicts. Uh, there are a lot of what we econo- what economists would call externalities to legalizing marijuana. There, it, it it is unleashing another another addictive, uh, dangerous drug on 
the folks in Missouri is, I don't believe, a good good thing. I, I think I feel in many ways the way physicians in the 50s and 60s probably felt about tobacco, where everything they read about the drug in question looked negative, and yet social acceptance of the drug became greater and greater. Um, what's going to happen to these ballot initiatives? I think you put medical in front of anything. You could say medical arsenic or medical hemlock, and I think voters would probably say, well, if it's medical, I'll vote for it. Uh, but I don't think in the long run this is going to be a good thing for Missouri or for patients. Going on that same sort of note about social acceptance, you have two county, at least potentially two county smoking bans in St. Charles County that'll be on the ballot. What do you think that should look like? Should it be without exemptions? Should there be exemptions for the bars? Which which of those would you like to see go across the finish line? Because I believe St. Charles has nothing right no. now, right? Is that is that the case? I don't believe St. Charles has a smoking ban right now. Countywide. It's been, it's been right. discussed. For, yeah, I think individual cities do and municipalities. Yeah, you know, I, I believe in freedom. Uh, I, 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 do, I do believe that, uh, that, that people can choose. There are many, many smoke-free uh, restaurants in my county. And, uh, you know, I believe that if, if a particular bar or restaurant wants to be smoke-free, uh, great. If, if they want to pursue some sort of middle course, that's okay, too. Or if they want to uh, allow smoking, uh, that's, a, that, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't see a reason to impose it countywide. What about vaping? What's your opinion of vaping? <laughs> yeah. So my, I don't, I'm not aware of any effort to illegalize vaping in my county or elsewhere. Well, it's I, not illegalizing, I, but I think yeah. a lot of smoking bans that yeah. are on the ballot would include vaping. And yeah. I, I joke the about- smoke free, I, The smoke for the show I, me smoke free I, I would joke about vaping, vaping yeah. all the time, but you would not believe how many vaping enthusiasts were, were upset when, when in St. Louis County, they all raised right. the smoking age from 18 to 21 and included vaping products. Mm -hmm. Those yes. are some of the most- outspoken and passionate political yes. people I have ever seen. They vape and they vote. Well, I would say from, from a health point of view, when my patients who are tobacco smokers switch to vaping, I'm pretty happy because I, I, we know that the effects of tobacco smoking are devastating. Um, I don't think the vape vapors are quite as offensive to uh, or dangerous to, to non-vapors as uh, tobacco smoke is to non-smokers. Um, but including it in the smoking ban, I think if you're going to have a smoking ban, ban you probably include everything. Would you agree that they will succeed? Uh, that the uh, smoking ban will succeed or the vapors will succeed the vapors. at getting excluded? <laughs> I don't know, Jason. <laughs> Sorry, that was not a serious question. Let's go into a serious issue, though, clean Missouri, which is yes. probably something you're very interested in. Yes. We, we've talked a, a lot about that on the show. I, I think you probably agree that lobbyist gifts should be curtailed or there should be a longer waiting period for uh, legislators to become lobbyists. But I imagine you're not super enthused about the redistricting yeah. part. I have not yeah. found many Republicans besides uh, Senator Schaaf and Lemke yeah. who are in favor of that. Yeah. So not only am I in favor of lobbyist gift bans, I've sponsored it in 2016. I was the Senate handler for Justin Alferman's, uh, Representative Justin Alferman's um, gift ban uh, bill. Uh, and I was the Senate sponsor for the bill that, uh, that created limits on that revolving door between legislating and lobbying. But I think Clean Missouri at its heart is not about 
banning lobbyist gifts. It's not about the revolving door. It is a cynical attempt to manipulate Missouri voters in order to get this new redistricting scheme that I refer to as gerrymandering on steroids. I think the redistricting scheme in Clean Missouri is an attempt to redraw district lines uh, with very bizarre looking and potentially non-contiguous districts in order to elect more radical left progressive uh, legislators to office. And I think that's why hundreds of thousands of dollars of money has come from progressive groups, from unions, from pro-abortion groups, uh, from animal rights groups, from the Sierra Club and other uh, left of center organizations because they want, as Eric Holder put it, er they want to uh, to attack states that have what Eric Holder called a trifecta of, a, of Republican governor, Republican House, and Republican Senate. I think it's uh, an attempt to deceive Missouri voters and to really subvert our electoral system in Missouri. Now, I brought this point up before because I'm sure you were following the redistricting process closely in 2011. The biggest problem I had with that process is when the the commission's deadlock, because there's been a lot of emphasis on yes. the commissions. The commissions, with the exception of the second Senate commissions, are really kind of irrelevant to the process because they almost always deadlock. The real people that draw the districts now are the appellate judges. Are the judges. And I have been bothered by just the lack of transparency and the lack of like explanations on how some of these districts are drawn. In the case of this first Senate map, right. they drew a clearly unconstitutional map that even I as a non-lawyer could figure out was not going to stand when it was challenged. And I don't know if you would require like a constitutional amendment or a statute, but I do think that that process needs more transparency. What, what's your thought on that? I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I think no process is perfect, and I think the present redistricting process could be improved. But to put this this redistricting process in the hands of an un unelected so-called nonpartisan uh, demographer who uh, would very likely be three liberal Democrats uh, selected by Nicole Galloway uh, and uh, make this uh, this demographer the uh, the dictator who will determine what our district lines are. I think that's completely inappropriate. Now, the clean Missouri people would say that even under that scenario, because we talked about this on our show, that the auditor could present three of the same party people to the Senate majority leader and the minority leader. Do we have any doubt that she would? I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to ask Nicole Galloway yeah. when she comes on the show or Sandra McDowell whether she would yes. do the, the opposite. Correct. Th that what their argument is, is there's very strict criteria that would prevent a potentially partisan, nonpartisan demographer from creating districts that help one party or another. And I, I think basically they take a formula of the various statewide elections and say, and, and kind of conform that with an overall well, map even, in my, even, my understanding. Well, even, even the, the elections that they choose are uh, biased to, uh, to favor Democrats. Um, they look at the last three governor's elections, um, that would be Greitens and then Nixon and then Nixon. Um, they uh, look at, uh, at, at the uh, U.S. Senate elections, that would be McCas McCaskill, Blunt, and then whoever wins this year. Uh, they look at the – so so I, I think, though, that there is nothing to keep um, 
and, and this idea of minimizing wasted votes, the idea is 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 to try to um, is to try to make you see. I may I may may win my my district in the fall with say fifty six sixty percent of the vote. But in, uh, in, 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 in urban areas, Maria Chappelle Nadal or Jamila Nasheed might win their races if there's a Republican at all. Uh, there with usually isn't. 90%, <laughs> 90% of the vote. Uh, I don't see, even though there is lip service to the Voting Rights Act in the amendment, I don't see how that does not disadvantage uh, African-American urban voters and, uh, and candidates. Uh, so I think there's a lot of problems with clean Missouri. Uh, I call it con job Missouri, and I urge the voters to reject it. And um, any final thoughts before we let you go back to, to beautiful St. Uh, Charles County about either the upcoming election or the state of Missouri politics? Well, I'm optimistic about the upcoming election. I'm optimistic that the uh, people that are look like they'll, they'll be serving with me in the Missouri Senate next year will be really great public servants. And um, I, I think it'll be a pleasure to work with Governor Mike Parson. I think we're going to do a lot to move our state forward and to make Missouri a better place. Well, thank you so much for coming out here and, and talking about these important issues for all of our stories. STLPublicRadio.org. Follow me on Twitter, Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Rachel on Twitter at... At our Lipman, two Ps, two Ns. And how could people get a hold of you either on Twitter or other parts of the World Wide Web? Uh, Twitter is uh, Bob Under Mo at Bob Under Mo and underforsenate.com um, is my campaign website. And is it the word or the number four? It's uh, spelled out. Okay. That's an important thing to know. We'll, we'll, we'll have to type in the number four. We'll <laughs> See what happens. We'll be back next time. Until then. Okay.